Uh, good morning, you guys. My name is Reggie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. And uh, this morning, we will be continuing on through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Very specifically this morning, we'll be looking at um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, a verse that's probably familiar to, um, to many of you guys. But before we get to that, let's, let's take a moment and pray real quick. Um, God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. God, thank you for the reminder right now from your word that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled to you. God, we, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you that you have promised through Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, to redeem the world to yourself. And God, over the course of the last few weeks, we've seen so much violence and terror and hate. And we've seen sin continue to wreck our world. And so God, we, we pray that you would hasten the day when Jesus's peace would reign supreme across the earth. God, not just that there would be a lack of conflict, but that you would, you would redeem the world to yourself that you would make all things new. God, we look forward to that day. But God, even today, as we look at your word, as we worship and sing, we remember that through the gospel, you've promised peace. Through the death of Jesus, you've provided a way for us to be reconciled to you. And so God, as I stand on this stage this morning and preach from your word, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace and mercy, an instrument of your gospel, that Jesus might be lifted high, that we might be drawn to you, and that we might have your peace because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we get started this morning, let me, guys, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever attempted to do something and failed miserably at it? Have you ever attempted to do something and failed miserably at it? You, a couple of years ago, uh, or over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to run in a couple of Spartan races. Do you guys know what Spartan races are? Have you seen the thing on TV right now? They're like mud runs where you go out and you complete all these obstacles. Um, I've had an opportunity to do it with Amy, with Tommy, uh, a few other people along the way. And on every Spartan race I've ever been in, there's a rope that you have to climb, right? So you run up and you jump into a mud pit and there's a rope and you're supposed to climb to the top of the rope and hit the bell and then you don't have to take the punishment of doing 30 burpees. If you can't get up the rope, you have to do 30 burpees. So in all the races that I've done, I've failed miserably at the rope climb, right? I've watched Tommy do it. I've watched my wife do it in front of me, climb to the top of the rope, hit the bell. I've watched my daughter climb ropes, but I can't get up that rope. I fail miserably every time I try to climb a rope. That may come as a surprise to you, I mean, when you look at me, a specimen of physical health, but it's something that I failed at miserably over and over and over, and I can't quite do it. Over the past several weeks, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 7, like I said, and in, in Matthew chapter 7, we've seen how the kingdom of God displayed in our lives should have practical and real effects on the way that we interact with other people in our relationships. 
we've seen that Jesus isn't really interested in us having a relationship with him that doesn't actually affect our relationships with others. He desires our faith and our trust and our relationship with him to have a practical impact in the way that we deal with people around us, whether we know those people or not, whether they're part of our family or not. And in essence, the whole Sermon on the Mount is really about two things. It's about God's kingdom and it's about our kingdom. And Jesus has been teaching in these verses uh, what his kingdom looks like, how things happen in his kingdom. And he's fighting against the um, desire probably of the hearers and against our own desires to shrink God's kingdom down to our own kingdom, to make it something that is ours. And so Jesus uh, lays out for us in the Sermon on the Mount what his kingdom looks like. And so as we get to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 this morning, we, we must understand it in light of the overall passage of Matthew chapter 7 and the overall Sermon on the Mount. This summer, I had the opportunity earlier in the summer to um, teach like a basic hermeneutics class, and there probably wasn't really a lot of teaching, um, but I had um, several ladies that were in the class with me, and one of the things that I reiterated over and over and over and over um, is the concept that context is king. And so to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, we need to understand the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount and the whole context of chapter 7. And so in Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We know that the Sermon on the Mount, that in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is talking about his kingdom and what his kingdom looks like. And in the first five verses of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus addresses the issue of judging and drawing conclusions and acting on those conclusions in regards to our brothers and sisters. Ben talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. And we saw where we are not to evaluate and correct our brothers and sisters in the Lord, how we are and how we are not to evaluate and correct our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, We were reminded to not be uncharitable in our judgments of one another, to pay close attention to our own sins before we start pointing out the sins of others. We were reminded about prayer last week in verses 7 through 11, where uh, Ben clearly laid out that Jesus was calling us um, to pray on behalf of ourselves and to pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters that we might find what God would have for us in both our needs and the relationships we have with others. And then today, we get to verse 12, where Jesus begins to speak to us about his general rule on how we are to relate to other people. We've come to this passage that's known as the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This same teaching is found in other places in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament to a certain extent, um, usually framed in a different context. In Luke chapter 6, which we'll see in just a second, Uh, Jesus frames this very word in the context of relationships with uh, enemies. But like so many other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, this passage is incredibly misunderstood, incredibly misapplied at times, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's very well known. People who may have very little biblical knowledge certainly know what the golden rule is. We've all heard it. 
Um, and we've seen it in lots of different religious traditions, lots of different cultures. Even during the time of Jesus, there were other, uh, or there were Jewish rabbis who were teaching some form of this same statement. But Jesus takes this statement, frames it in a positive context, and then directly connects it to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Right? So Jesus says, do unto others. And then he says, for this is the law and the prophets. So this is what it looks like when you follow what the Old Testament lays out. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. This is what it looks like when you follow what God has laid out in the Old Testament scriptures. And so in this passage, here's what we need to see. And here's what I want us to take away. Number one, God calls us to love others. And number two, there's no way we can do it. Stay with me. God calls us to love others, and we can't do it apart from the work of the gospel in our lives. God calls us to love others, right? Now, that concept should be fairly obvious to us as believers. It would be hard to read through Scripture without grasping that God has called his people to love those people around us. Oftentimes, when Christians are criticized by people who may not be Christians— it's in the framework or the context of where's the love, where's the grace, um, things like that. So the concept that Christians should love others isn't really unfamiliar to us. And indeed, it's spread out through all of Scripture. And in some cases, in other places in Scripture, the language very closely mirrors what Jesus says here. Let me read you some other examples. Um, and I think the words will be on the screen as well. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.34, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, which we've already looked at in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first thing, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then Luke chapter 6 that I referenced a second ago. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." Right, scripture is pretty clear about the command to love others. And so as Christians, 
It's not really a question of should we love others or not. It's a question of how do we apply this? It's a question of how do we put this into practice? God's word here is clear, and there's a clear command and a clear call from God to love others. And that call is not unclear. What is unclear is how we do it, right? Because Jesus isn't calling us to be passive. Jesus isn't calling us to do nothing. He's actually calling us to act on behalf of others. He's actually telling us to act in a way that seeks the good of those around us, that seeks the good of the people that we interact with, that seeks the good of our neighbors and our enemies. If Jesus had stated the golden rule in a negative context, as in don't do anything to others that you wouldn't want done to you, well, then we could do nothing and fulfill the golden rule. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophet. So Jesus' command here is a command of action. It's a command of, uh, of actually doing something, not being passive. You are to love your neighbor even if that neighbor is your enemy. And you are to love your enemy until your enemy is your neighbor. Right? Jesus has, has, has very clearly laid out this command before us. Scripture does. And take note that love here isn't just some ethereal, romantic idea. Like, I, I'm not talking about Shakespearean love and sonnets and Romeo and Juliet. I, I'm talking the idea of biblical love, a, a choice to seek the good of others whether they seek our good or not. A, a decision to act on the behalf of others expecting nothing in return. And, and we have the model of that love, right? Jesus and his death on the cross. That's what we understand as a biblical concept of love. And, and I will confess to you, first and foremost, bef before I go any further, that I have trouble even loving the people that I say that I love. I wish I could say that every thought, intention, desire, and action toward my wife and kids was always loving, but I would not be honest if I said so. I, I wish I could say that I always responded to my children with patience and grace and love, but I can't. My wife and my kids are the people who are the most precious to me, but I fail regularly in loving them the way that Jesus loved us. And so when we hear Jesus' call here, how can we ever love others? How can I ever love my enemies? How can I ever love my neighbors? How will I ever love people who were different from me, who believe differently than me? who value things different than I value, whose culture is different than mine. When I can't even properly love the people close to me, it seems utterly impossible that I could fulfill what Jesus is saying here in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's almost an irrational 
command from Jesus. It's almost like we should close the book and we should go home because it seems impossible for us to do that. How's it ever going to happen? It's like me and the rope, right? I can't get up the rope. I can't even love my family. How am I going to fulfill Jesus' command here? And this, this is where we start to understand the role of the gospel in our lives and in Jesus' command to love others. This is where we start to understand the good news of Jesus. The good news that we read about, the good news that we sang about just a moment ago, that we have an opportunity to be rightly related and rightly reconciled to God. It's the good news that Jesus' righteousness and right standing before God can be attributed to us because of the work of Christ. It's the good news that God counts us as righteous based only on the finished sacrifice of Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus' death takes away our sin and his resurrection establishes us in his kingdom. And once we're established there, he sends us to make disciples and to love others as a key component of making disciples. How can I love others apart from the work of the gospel in my life ongoingly? Let me give you a gospel principle here. True righteousness begins when you come to the end of yourself. True righteousness begins when you come to the end of yourself and you realize that you don't have what it takes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly in conflict with some religious leaders around them. We typically refer to them as the Pharisees. The problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees, the reason Jesus had such conflict with them is because their righteousness really didn't need any divine help. There was a system that they could fulfill on their own apart from God's work in their life. It was humanly conceived and humanly doable. And so when we come to Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What that command ought to do is bring us to the end of ourselves because we can't do it. Those words actually ought to drive us straight to our Heavenly Father if we take them seriously. They ought to send us running to Jesus because there's no way that we can do this on our own. What's glorious about the call of the kingdom of God, what's glorious about Jesus' command, even here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, is that it should bring us to the end of ourselves so that we say, God, I want to do this, but I can't. It should drive us to our Redeemer. It should drive us to His grace. It should drive us to His love. It should drive us to our knees, saying, God, I want to do what you've called me to do, but I can't. It should drive us beyond ourselves to the point where we say, God, the standard is too high, the standard is too great, so God, 
help me. And that's where an understanding of true righteousness and a true understanding of the gospel begins. When we're overwhelmed by the call of God, we're actually in a very spiritually healthy place. Think with me for a moment about our own struggle to love others. If I were to play a video for you of your life over the last week, and the way that you interacted with others, what would we see? If I were to play a video of myself over the last two weeks, and the way that I've responded to others, you would see failure repeatedly. You would see me constantly failing in the way that I interacted with my kids, in the way that I interacted with my wife, the way they interact with the people that I work with, and the way that I interact with the people that I supervise. Over and over and over, you would see failure. And Jesus says things like this. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, when I come to the end of myself and realize the call of God is too great on my life, God, help me. I can't do this apart from your work in my life. That's when we begin to understand the gospel. And that's when we begin to understand exactly what Jesus is calling us to do here. We begin to understand that there's no way, there's no way for us to fulfill what God has called us to apart from the work of Jesus in our lives and only because of the work of Christ. This is going to come as a surprise to some of you guys But my greatest weakness, or one of my greatest weaknesses, is a propensity to anger. My eight-year-old daughter, Laurel, gets it too. We have terrible tempers. She's redheaded like me, and, and she fits the mold. Just this past week, I was thinking about some former members of our church who left on not very good terms and who actually in their leaving sought some ill will toward our church and some ill will toward some members who, who actually acted to harm them. And I became very angry, just livid to the point of not being able to sleep. And so I laid in the bed and I rehearsed in my mind all the things I would say to these people, all the words I would heap on their heads the next time that I bumped into them. It kept me awake at night, how angry and just frustrated I was. And then I got up the next morning, and I had to work on a sermon about loving your enemies and treating other people according to a gospel standard. I want you to hear what I'm saying. It is the intention of Christ to push us beyond ourselves to him. It is the intention of Jesus to push us beyond ourselves straight to Jesus. Jesus pushes us there because we will only be the light of the world. We will only be able to love others the way that Jesus has called us to when we've given up on ourselves and we've turned to Jesus in light of the gospel. It's only when you and I give up on us and turn to Jesus, that we begin to experience the power of God working through us. 
Listen, it can be said of you that you love, but it's said of your heavenly Father, God is love. God is a God of such magnificent love. There's never been a moment in human history where he isn't shining his love on people who don't deserve it. Even shining his love on people who oppose him. Our love, no matter how grand, is flawed in some way because we're all sinners. And this side of eternity, there will never be a moment where you can say, I've done it. There will never be a moment where you'll be able to say, I've arrived. There will never be a moment where you can say, I've achieved the standard that God has set. And we may think that we're nearing the standard that Jesus has set here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, by being polite, by being nice, by being socially conscious, by being conscious of culture and age and race and socioeconomic status and having good manners and saying please and thank you and yes, sir, and no, sir. That's not enough. That is simply not enough. That is not what Christ has called us to. Christ has called us to act on behalf of others, whether they're going to act on our behalf or not. The standard that God has called us to is so much greater than we can do on our own. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus is pushing us to himself. The fact that we cannot do this on our own should leave us at two places. First is this. It should bring us to our knees in prayer because there is not a person in this room who can say, I'm living the way that Jesus has called me to live when it comes to acting on behalf of others. None of us can say that. Let's just be honest. None of us can say that. This is an incredibly hard sermon for me to preach. It's an incredibly hard text to deal with, even though it's one short verse, because it has completely exposed the condition of my own heart, a heart of anger and impatience rather than love and grace. I would like to stand before you and say I'm an example of what God has called us to be and do, but I can't. I can't even tell you that I love my family like I should. And so this passage should drive me, it should drive you to our knees and say, God, please rescue me from me. That's exactly what this verse should call us to do. When we examine our hearts and we know that we are failing, when we know that we are lacking, it should drive us to our knees in prayer. God, rescue me. Jesus, rescue me from me. Take me beyond myself to you. This passage should draw us to our knees in prayer. God, help me. God, help me. I can't do what you've called me to do. Here's the second thing about where we are left. When you begin to live in love that cannot be explained by culture, the South, in politeness and niceness and manners, you begin to present the glory of God to people who need to see it because it's only God who produces that kind of love. And that person may not know what you're doing at first. They may not understand it, but, but hopefully they will see and become inquisitive and they'll wonder, why would this person do such a thing 
for me. I asked Brent if I could use this as an example. Uh, so this isn't an illustration from my own life, but Brent was telling me just this week how um, at some point in the past, he was at the Y across the street uh, playing basketball on the basketball court. And they came in, and I guess a manager or somebody came in and asked Brent and whoever he was playing basketball with to get off the courts because they needed to do some kind of class in there. I don't know, hip-hop dancing, step-up class, I don't know. But they needed to do a class in the gym where they were playing basketball. And so Brent told me about how for a little while he went off on the manager and said, hey, why, why can't, this is a basketball court, this is for team sports, this is not for a step-up class, why can't I stay in here and play basketball? Brent left the course and he said um, over the course of a little while that God began to work in his heart and began to um, convict him of the way that he responded and his reaction and he went back to the guy that had told him to get off the court at some point and apologized and uh, just laid out the condition of Brent's heart to explain why he reacted the way he did. Um, The guy ended up being very generous to Brent in response and actually gave him a gym bag. That's not why we do unto others the way that God has called us to, but it's an example, right? It's an example of us saying, God, I messed up. I did not meet the standard that you've called me to. Help me go back and make it right with this person. And hopefully, hopefully, as we do those things God uses those things to draw people to himself that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and in the hearts of the lives of the people that we interact with to dismantle our rebellion, to dismantle their rebellion and help us move toward Jesus. God has called us to love others. And that's not just an individual thing. Let me make that clear. It would be easy to look at this passage and think of it only in terms of me and other people. But it goes even beyond that. The implications of what Jesus is saying here extends even to a church community. God gathers the people to himself through the gospel. And he says that this new community will be defined by love. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The love that defines us is the same love that demonstrates and declares God's love for the world. A community defined by love for one another is a community that is demonstrating one of the chief characteristics of God to the world around us. So may it be that God would rescue me from me. May it be that God would rescue us from us. May it be that God would produce in me, in our church community, this kind of love. May we be people of love instead of anger. May we be people of love instead of impatience. May we be people who value others so much that we turn to the gospel and come to the end of ourselves and turn To Jesus on our knees saying, God, help me to do what you're calling me to do because I can't do it. May we be a light to a lost world. May the world around us see how much we value the gospel and the way that we interact with one another and in the way that we interact with those who are not part of our community of faith 
or our family so that the world around us sees that we value the gospel and our spheres of influence may God see the gospel at work in our hearts and in our minds. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus reconciles us to himself. The good news of the gospel is when Jesus reconciles us to himself, he sets us apart for a purpose. He gathers us as a community and he gives us the purpose of making disciples. And as a part of that, he calls us to love others. But he doesn't expect us to do it on our own. The good news of the gospel is the standard is too great for you to achieve, but God makes a way through Jesus. And so may we turn to Jesus on our knees saying, God, help me do what you've called me to do. Help me to act on the behalf of others because I cannot do it on our own. But understand this, until we understand the gospel, until we are in a right relationship with Jesus, we'll never be able to do what Jesus has called us to do. The biblical concept there is being precedes doing. Being Christ's own child precedes what he calls us to do. We are, and then we act. We're set apart, and then we have a mission. God makes us his own, and then he calls us to do something, but he doesn't call us to do those things apart from himself. We turn to him and say, God, I can't do what you've called me to do as your child. Help me do it. The Sermon on the Mount is really about God's kingdom, Loving others is a reflection of God's kingdom. It's a reflection of God. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of transforming love. Let me close with this quote before we move into a time of response that I'll explain in a minute. But Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama in November of 1957. And he said this. Now, there's a final reason, I think, that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you lose your enemies, you will discover that at the very root, I'm sorry, but if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. The biblical truth there is that that's what Jesus did for us. Scripture teaches us that we were at enmity with God because of our sin, and Jesus loved us enough to transform us into his own child when we come to him, when we admit that we need that relationship with Jesus. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, as we look at the golden rule, as we look at Jesus' command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, may it bring us to our knees in light of the gospel. May we say, Jesus, I can't do it. I need your help. I need your help. And just as importantly, may we turn to Jesus if we don't know him in light of the gospel and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to be your very own. We're going to enter into a time of response, and every
Sunday here at Redemption, we um, close out our sermon in this way. We provide a couple of opportunities for us to respond to what God has spoken to us through his word and what God is doing in our hearts and minds through the Holy Spirit. Um, So there's a couple of things that are going to happen. Number one, in a second, the band is going to come back up here and uh, continue to lead us in some songs and give us an opportunity to respond uh, through worship by singing, if that's what God um, leads you to do. I would invite you as well to sit where you are and reflect on what we've heard this morning from God's word. As God's word is uh, working in your hearts and minds, this is an opportunity for, to, for you to sit where you are and think and reflect and pray. If you need to pray with someone, uh, there should be somebody on the back, in the back with an orange lanyard um, that can pray with you. If you want to understand more about the gospel, if you want to uh, just have something, some need that needs to be prayed for, there are people there um, to do that. During this time, there's also a giving basket in the back, an opportunity for us to worship uh, through giving, and that's what, that's what giving is. It's a reflection of us saying, God, this is, everything we have is yours, and we worship by giving back what you've called us to. And also during this time, there's an opportunity to take communion. So, when we take communion here, it's with the understanding that as we tear the bread off the bread, tear, tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the wine or juice, we're remembering that Christ's body was broken for us. We're remembering that Christ's blood was shed for us. And as we remember what Christ has done for us, the, the visible act of taking the bread and dipping it in the wine or juice and eating it is a, is a uh, proclamation that we believe the gospel, that we believe that Jesus said what what he meant, what he said, that he did what he said he would do, and that he actually saved us and made a way for us to be his own. So I would invite you to come and take communion if God gives you the freedom to do so, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, but do it with the understanding that we are remembering Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, and we are proclaiming that we believe the gospel and that God has made a way for us to be rightly related to him. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together this morning. Thank you for the ways um, that we've been able to meet with you already in this place by hearing your word, by singing together, by praying, whatever ways we've been able to meet with you so far. And God, even now as we continue to respond, as we sing or give or pray and reflect, take communion, and all these things, God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts to draw us to you. I pray that you would continue to push us to the end of ourselves, so that we meet you there. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you've made a way for us to be rightly related to you. And God, even now, I pray that you would continue to bring us to Jesus, that Christ would be lifted high, that we might be drawn to you. And God, we ask all this. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.